0: As the younger kids go back, um, just as way of preparing for Easter, instead of doing the catechism as we do uh, every other time of the month, um, over the next two Sundays, they're going to be looking at this book here. Um, it's called The Biggest Stories Bible Storybook, Easter Stories, uh, by Kevin D. Young. Uh, it's just a new kid's Bible that came out that's really good and uh, really just written well, as well as the artist work is fantastic. And so just a good time of teaching them uh, just much about what Christ has done for us um, on the day in which we celebrate Easter. And so this morning, though, as we're getting into Acts chapter 7, um, just to let you know, we're going to tackle all of Acts chapter 7. Um, not part of it, not half of it, all of it. Um, and so I'm not sure how this will go because it's slightly different than I'm used to. I don't preach 54 verses at a time normally. Uh, I'm more of a 10 to 12, maybe even 6 to 8. But 54 will be good nonetheless. And the reason why we're doing it this way, um, as we were kind of breaking it up as the elders and discussing and thinking through this, and the reason why Troy preached like he did last week when he looked at chapter 6, verse 8 through the chapter 15, and then he jumped to chapter, uh, end of chapter seven, and then he did part of chapter eight. The reason why we did all of this is because this is one big narrative. And the big narrative is very simply that, that this people are making up these things about Stephen. And as they make up these things about Stephen, he's put before the high council with the high priests and all these individuals, and they decided to kill him in this moment. And that's exactly what we saw last week and that was a glorious glorious death seeing him die in the way in which he did seeing the the father on the throne and the son standing up it was an amazing death and one that honestly would be the most worthy way of dying right but now we're going to see what led to them killing stephen and it's not because of false accusations It's not because of what other people were saying that he was saying, but it's because of what he says through this sermon. Now, um, just to say this and make this make sense, and then we're going to look at a little bit of backstory to this, is that in the Old Testament, what we have often is this role, um, and this role is normally held by Uh, Some form of prophet. We see that Jeremiah was this and we see that Isaiah was this. And it's really this idea um, and this phrase that's not one that I originated, but one that I have found to be true. And it's called a covenant prosecutor. And what that means is that there was times where prophets of the Old Testament would write things about things that were going to occur. There's times where they did these signs and wonders and miraculous things that were to build up the body in which God was calling to himself. But in reality, sometimes God brought up people that their role was to deliver the judgment of God. For example, we'll turn real quick to one, and I didn't plan on this, so this is just going to make us go a little bit longer. Look at Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. I love this chapter. I love this verse, and I love it because of Isaiah 6, 8, and how we see just the holiness of God, the the sinfulness of man, the, the righteousness of God, forgiving sin. And we see the call of man. So we see this God, man, Christ response in this. And we see that Isaiah is called by God. And in verse 8, he says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Isaiah is saying, Here I am, send me. And listen to what God tells him to do. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of the people dull and their eyes heavy, the blind of their eyes, lest they see their eyes and hear it with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O oh Lord? How long am I going to go and deliver this terrible message? Essentially, verse 11, and he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and land in a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people from far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a rebirth uh, of an oak and a stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So we see this role in the prophets, and Isaiah to be one specifically, where he is one to be this covenant prosecutor. And what that means, and a prosecutor is one that would deliver the judgment or one that would fight uh, against an individual for the wrongdoing they've done. And the reason why God had some prophets of the Old Testament operate this way is because there was a breaking of the covenant that God made with his people. And in the life of Stephen, his sermon is not like Peter's. It's not like Paul's. It's not like anywhere else we find in the New Testament because it mirrors that of the Old Testament almost. So Stephen is preaching much like a covenant prosecutor would had in the Old Testament. And so as we look at his sermon, what I want us to know on the front end is we're not going to see good news. You're not going to see um, Christ's redemption. You're not going to see the response that is offered to people. We're going to see nothing but bad news. Now, I think it is fair to state that his sermon gets cut, cut off pretty short, right? He ends up dying at the hands of the individuals he's speaking to. And in the midst of his dying, he prays that God would forgive them for what they do not know, understand that they do and that they would come to know Christ. But we don't see that in the speech or in the sermon itself. So, let me ask this question as we get into it. and I'm not asking it for you to answer. I'm asking it rhetorically because we're going to look at some scriptures. Who is Stephen? All right? we, we don't know much about Stephen, but what we do know about Stephen is found in chapter 6. So look at chapter 6, verse 5 with me. It says, And they chose Stephen talking about in this uh, election of deacons, essentially, and establishing this uh, role within the church. It says, and they chose Stephen, the first one mentioned here, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. All right? So Stephen is known as a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. But what else do we know about Stephen? Look at verse 8 of the same chapter. And Stephen, full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So Stephen is a man that is known for his faith, of the, the presence of the Holy Spirit, of full grace and power. And as Troy pointed out when he preached this text last week, he's the only person to this point at least that we see as referenced as one that was doing great wonders and signs among the people outside of Peter and the other apostles. So Stephen was a man that was known as this, and what we see and displayed in his life and in this sermon is that this is exactly what's true. That in the midst of rocks being thrown at his face, it's as if he doesn't even know that is happening. Did God protect him from that, or was his eyes so focused on who God was in that moment that he was not even noticing the the death that was before him? Who knows? But we know that he is a man that is known as one that is full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace and power. Now, so we know who Stephen is. And Troy's already established some of this, but I want to look at the charges that have been set out against Stephen. Because this moment here in verse 1 of chapter 7, let's just read it just a little bit. It says, And the high priest said, Are these things so? So this high priest is asking Stephen, very simply, is this the case? Is this so? Now, this is much like what we've seen so far in the life of Peter and John, where he is most likely uh, in front of this, this array of individuals in this moon, half-moon-shaped place where he was in the center and he is being um, just asked and berated and really just on trial for what is The claims against him. This was an official trial against Stephen. And he asked him very simply, are these things so? Now are what things so? Look at verse eleven, and then we're going to skip twelve and go to thirteen. Says then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So this group of individuals, as we would see. the freedmen and the Cyanarians and the Alexandrians of Asia, they're they're the ones that are instigating these peoples, these people, to say that we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. But look at thirteen, it kind of nails down a little bit more the charges. And they set up false witnesses and said to him, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy places of the law and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth would destroy this place and would change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So what happened here was this group of Jews instigated these people to begin to say this one thing. And as they begin to say this one thing, it was becoming known within the temple that this guy named Stephen was this guy who was saying that Jesus was going to destroy their place of worship and change their customs. What I find most interesting about that is that on the surface level, that's the same thing Jesus said he would do. That on this day, in three days, I will tear down the temple and raise it up again. So Jesus is claiming a very similar thing in his life. So what is so wrong about these claims? What I want us to understand about the people in which Stephen is preaching to is that they seemingly misunderstood everything about who God was and what God was doing. But not only what Stephen is saying did they misunderstand, but they misunderstood who Jesus was and what Jesus was doing. How do we know this to be the case? This great high priest, this great high priest is the one Whom would have been the one that pushed for Christ to be crucified? This is the one that Stephen, not Stephen, but Peter and John stands before. This is the one whom they did again. This is the one over and over again has an opportunity to to return and turn from their wickedness and look towards Christ, but they just simply don't understand what's going on here. So, Stephen gives this speech to lay it out there. So before we get to that, let's look at 51 through 53. 51 through 53. I want to read it. And as I read it, I'm not going to talk about it, but we're going to come back to it later. The reason why I'm doing this is because when you look at verses 1 through 50, they're fantastic things that we're going to work our way through slowly, but quickly at the same time, if that makes any sense to you. But 51 through 53 is the premise of Stephen's entire sermon. This is the point he's trying to make. The other 51 verses is really just to explain why this is the case. So he says this. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute as they they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous ones whom you have now betrayed and murdered? You who received the law was as delivered by angels and did not keep it. What does happen after he utters these words? Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. And then later they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears and rushed together in, at him. They cast him out in the city and stoned him, and witnessed lay down their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. After Stephen uttered these words, he sees the Father sitting on the throne, the Son of God standing, and then he dies. So let's look at the words he says that leads to such a miraculous and amazing death. Let's look at verse 2. It says, And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia Mes- before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after the father died, God removed him from their land. Into the, after his father died, God removed him from there into the land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length or promise to give it to a possession of his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, and he would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them this covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him in the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Now, Stephen was asked a very basic question, are these things true? Stephen's not giving these people a history lesson because they knew what he was about to unfold. He's telling them a reason for the last few verses we read in chapter 7. And so naturally, he begins with Abraham. And in beginning with Abraham, he's calling out this fact that Abraham was a man that was not in the land of the promised land. He was a man that was a sojourner in the land of the pagans. And when he was called out by God, he was called out by God in a land that was unknown to the individuals they now had. That he was called out as a person that was a pagan that did not know God or have anything to do with God. And that even after he was called out, there was no land personally given to him. It was yet a promise that would occur that they would be given to his, his descendants. But what he did receive with this covenant of circumcision, in this covenant in which that he promised his people would be sojourners in the land and be enslaved there for 400 years. So he's starting out at the beginning, and he's saying, look, God reached out and res- responded to Abraham and Abraham encountered and worshipped God in a land that you would now look so down upon. Why is this important? One major theme that he's making here in all of this is this pushback against verse 13, where they said, this man never ceases to speak the words against the holy place and the law. Because as I said earlier, these people, these religious leaders, they seemingly did not understand anything about what God was doing because it was never about the Holy Land itself. And so what Stephen is beginning to point out here is that before there even was a Holy Land or a temple, God convened with his people in the Mm -hmm. land of the pagans and made a covenant there with them. And that covenant was a covenant of circumcision. And we're going to come back to that word in just a little bit. And in this covenant of circumcision, Abraham circumcised his son Isaac on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob the 12 patriarchs. We're going to keep going. um, Because honestly, we could preach verses 1 through 8 as one big sermon, okay? But I want to just hit the high notes of what Stephen's trying to unfold here. So we're going to keep going. So... Stephen starts with the beginning, Abraham, the father of Israel, the, the one in which the covenant of circumcision was made, the one that was called out from the land of the pagans, and God convened with them there. Before there was even a holy place, before there was even a holy land, God didn't even provide it for him. And so if God was going to be a God that only gathered with his people in the holy places, then why did God not give to Abraham in that moment? Because God was not focused on a location as much as he was focusing on fellowshipping with his people. Let's start in verse 9. So if it's not already noticeable, we're going to keep going. In verse 9, it says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. And he rescued him out of the afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and made him ruler over Egypt and over his household. And now they, there came a famine throughout all of Egypt and Canaan. A great affliction of the fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent, his, he sent out our fathers on the first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent his and summoned Jacob, his father, and all the kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried to Shechem, and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. I'm going to pause there, because now we get a brief synopsis of the life of Joseph, and we know that this is a much longer story, but... Even the fact that he says they visit one time, and then the second time is when Joseph makes himself known. This is a very significant theme, okay? And the reason why this is significant is that Joseph does not reveal who he is to his brothers in this first visit. And let's not forget who Joseph is. Joseph was one that was going to be a picture of the Redeemer and the provider that was to come. Joseph was one that was to act as a shadow of Christ. And Joseph, not revealing himself in the first visit, but does in the second visit, was a way of just speaking to the people in which Stephen was talking to and saying, look, you didn't catch him in the first visit, but you're certainly going to catch him in the second. You may not know and realize now that he is the Redeemer now, but He you will certainly understand it when everything is made right. But let's see the progression that's being made here. In verse six says, And God spoke to this effect that his offsprings would be sojourners in a land belonging to others. So what happens in the life of Joseph is they become sojourners. And the land that belonged to others. They landed in Egypt, and what I would say is they landed in Egypt not by accident. They didn't land in Egypt because his brothers did a wicked thing. They landed in Egypt, as, as Joseph says himself, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. They land in Egypt because God was working out his covenant with his people that for them to be enslaved for 400 years, first they had to be sojourners in the land. And that's what we see unfolding here. But what I want us to not miss about this is God convened with Joseph in the land of the Egyptians. God spoke to Joseph. He provided dreams to Joseph. He communicated with Joseph. He was the one working out and orchestrating everything in Joseph's life. And so what's so significant about this for Stephen, I would say... is that Joseph convened with God in a place that was certainly not the Holy Land. Let's keep going. So we got Joseph, we got Abraham, we've got Joseph. We see the revealing of Joseph in the second visit, foreshadowing of the Christ that was to come. Verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, That right there is referring back to the latter part of verse 6, which says who would enslave them and inflict them 400 years. That's the promise. The promise wasn't something amazing or good or heartfelt or loving in per se, but the promise was God was doing something. What was the promise? That he was going to enslave his people So Stephen says it this way, he says, But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. So they go from 75 people to a great multitude, according to the Old Testament. Verse 18. Until there arose in Egypt another king who did not know Joseph, and he dealt shrewdly with our race. Catch that. He says, our race. In verse 1. Well, verse 2, he says, brothers and fathers. He's trying to connect with the people because it's not just their heritage, it's just his heritage. But we're going to see later on, he makes a distinction, just not yet. Verse 19, so he dealt truly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants that they were not kept alive. And at this time, Moses was born. He was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up in three months. In his father's house. And when he exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as his own son. You know, pause there. Moses' story is longer than anybody else's. So I'm not going to be able to finish it and go back. But we have here is three forties. 40s. Moses' first 40. Moses' second 40. Moses' third 40. And what I mean by that, first 40 years of his life, okay? 40, second 40, third 40. Uh, and what we see here is his birth. And in his birth, Pharaoh did not know the people of Israel. He did not have anything of sentiment in his heart for them. So what does he do? He kills their children. He kills their children. He kills their boys. And in killing their boys, we see in the Old Testament where the, the parents of Moses decides to do this amazing thing. And that was to put his their son into the, uh, this basket on the river and assume that whatever God were going to do in this moment would be better than what was going to occur to him. And it was certainly the case. Because in faith, we see that he ends up at the feet of Pharaoh's daughter. But let's not skip over the words in verse 20. It says, At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. It's not as if Moses was just a pretty baby, and God said, I'm going to save that one. You know, that ugly baby over there, we're not going to save that one, but Moses, he's, he's pretty. I'm going to save him. That's not the case going on. What he's saying here is that God had something in store for Moses. He had a a beautiful life and a beautiful story to unfold in the life of Moses. And so what he does is he preserves him. How does he preserve him? By being at the foot of Pharaoh's daughter who adopted him and brought him up as her own son's. We're going to pause there and say that many people in the life of Egypt and the life of the Israelites in the land of Egypt would have rather their son die than be raised by one of the Egyptians themselves. Because this is the pagan land. This is where they had multiple gods for everything. This is a god. This is a land that they would have they would have just been all taken away at the fact that their son would have been raised by one of those pagan individuals that would lead them to despair and lead them to, to rejection of who God is. Verse twenty two: and Moses was instructed in all wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was made mighty in words and deed. Moses grew up in a school that was much worse than public school is today. He grew up in a way of learning and being taught that would have been completely against who God was. But we see that God not only preserved him in this river, in a basket, but he continues to do so. Look at verse 23. And when he was 40 years old, he came into their heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. This gives new light to the story of Moses. When Moses was trying to deliver his brother from the affliction of the Egyptians, he did so thinking that he was one that would be a deliverer for them. Why did Moses have this understanding? Because Moses would have known the reality that God was going to deliver his people from this affliction. As we know in the actual lengthy story, his Moses' wet nurse was his actual mother that raised him up in a way that was good. And in doing so, Moses came to know, seemingly, to understand that he had a role to play in what was going to happen. But we see him doing it wrongly here. But what I want us to pause and see in this is that they did not receive Moses in the first visit. Let's keep going. Verse 26. And Now the following day he appeared to them, and they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man was wronging his neighbors, thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled, became exiled in the land of Midian, where he would become the father of two sons. Moses rejected in his deliverance of the people in his first visit to seemingly be accepted in the second visit. So this is his first 40, okay? The first 40, born, raised, standing up for the people of God to be rejected. Second 40, starting in verse 30. And they were 40 years old, passed, and drew a to him in the wilderness, in the Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire, in a bush. When Moses saw it, he amazed at the sight, and he drew near and looked, and they came at the voice of the Lord, I am God your Father The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, of Jacob, and Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And the Lord said to them, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now come, and I will send you to Egypt. Then Moses, whom they rejected, saying... Who made you ruler and judge? This man sent both a ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel and appeared to them in the bush. We're going to pause there because I kept reading, reading way too far. The second forty is this moment in which God reveals himself to Moses through the burning bush. And what I want us to see in this is the same theme we've seen through all of this so far is that Moses is in the land of Sinai in a flaming fire in a bush And what is said of the place in which he enters? He is on holy ground. In the land of the pagans, far from the promised city of God. So Stephen, once again, is saying, you misunderstand what is actually going on here. It's not about a place or a building. It's about communion with God. So Moses is sent. Verse 35. We're going to get to the third 40. Then Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man sent through both ruler and redeemer. By the hand of the angel appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and the wilderness for 40 years. Let's not miss this, that he was both a ruler and redeemer. He was sent by the angel who appeared to him in the bush, that he did many signs and wonders. Stephen is saying he's just one that was pointing to the Savior that was to come. He's comparing him to who Christ was, doing signs and wonders. Redeemer. Think of those words here. Verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise you up for you a prophet like me among your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him in Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. And for us, as for this Moses, who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. They made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice to the idol who were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship of heavens and is written the book of the prophets. Did you not bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up tents of Malak and stars of God of Rephan and images that were made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Now, This verse 42 and 43 is quoting a scripture, not in Exodus, but pointing back to Exodus. And Stephen is using this as a proof text per se. And I want to just note very briefly, um, this is not a major application in this text, but Stephen knew the word of God. He's standing before the high council. And it's not as if he's got a Bible standing before him, flipping pages, looking at it, referencing it. He knew these scriptures in and out. He's quoting this to the people that were the people that were supposed to be teaching the people, right? So he knew his word and in quoting this, he's pointing back at this moment in which the, the people of Israel not only rebelled against Moses, but rebelled against God. And what did they do? They crafted images of gods of works of their own hands. Some people would argue that the main point of Stephen's sermon is not only to point out the wrong place of worship in the hearts of the people and the rulers of Israel, but also to point out that they were just utterly crafting and making things of their own hands, worshiping themselves. And that's very possible. But that's not the focus I'm trying to point out to us this morning. So what we see in this is this total rebellion of God, where God's people, after being delivered from Egypt, decides to worship the gods of Egypt. It's horrible. Let's not be missed with the fact that we do the same thing in our lives. They may just not have names like Moloch and Refin. they may have names that are very different that were not created by us, but the manufacturer of some company. Or they may have the names of our wives, or our husbands, or our children, or our occupations. That often we find things to worship, that have our heart, that we give the works of our hands to, and in doing so we reject God in practice. But, main point Stephen is making here Is that their forefathers rejected God in this moment. And he's going to make that point even more clear in 51 through 53. So we see Moses is back 40. Let's look at the rest of 44 through 50 now. It says our fathers. We still see this representation with the people of Israel it's using the word are. It says our fathers had the ten of witnesses in the wilderness. All right, Let's make that make sense. The tabernacle. They had the tent with them in the wilderness. They crafted this by the works of God, by the commands of God. The the people come together, they craft this, they make this. Keep going. It says, just as he spoke to Moses, directed him to make it according to the patterns that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they disposed the nations that God drove out before the fathers so it was until the time of David. We're going to pause there because this is a reality we may not think of often. But this tent of meeting that was made by the people in the wilderness lasted until the time of Solomon. It's what they gathered in. It's what they, they lifted up in their city. This is what they, they met God in this this. Crafted tent. And I don't remember the exact years. If if I'm remembering right, I'm going to say 125, but it may be closer to 225. But there's a good distance in time between Moses crafting this in the wilderness and the time of David. And so David, as you remember, David is the one that set in his heart to build God a temple. Let's keep going, actually, before I get ahead of myself who found, verse 46, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Why did Solomon build the house for him instead of David? It's because David was a man of war that did not have God's heart even though he did have God's heart in other ways. So God did not allow David to build the temple, but he allowed David to craft the things that would be in the temple and around the temple, but he would not allow David to actually be the one that would build the temple up himself. But what's so interesting about that story, and even interesting when you get to Ezra and Nehemiah, is that God does not ask for a temple to be built. David seeks a temple to be built for God. Most likely, because that tent was withered and teared. Because it's been over 100 years old, right? Not allowed to build it, but built by Solomon. House for him. Verse 48. "Yet Yet the Most High does not dwell in the houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Let's look at 49. But before we do so, this is coming from... Psalms 11, okay? It says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, and what kind of place of my rest did my hand not make all of these things? See, we're getting to the main point, and it's the one that we've looked at throughout all of this. We're getting to Stephen's main point here is that they misunderstood what God was doing all along. He didn't desire a place. He desired fellowship with his people. It wasn't about the building. It wasn't about the temple. It was about communing with his people. And so what he says in verse 48 is quoting a different scripture than Solomon. But what we see in this is this right here. It says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in the house made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will build for me, says the Lord, "Of what, uh, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all of these things? My initial question here, because as I was prepping this, We've been in the reading plan. We're in 2 Chronicles. And it hadn't been that too many days ago before prepping this that we read through this fact that God had had used Solomon to build his temple. And in building this temple, Solomon wrote the words that we read at the very beginning of the service this morning. And my question was, why did Stephen not remember this? Or why did Stephen not quote this? Because I want you to look with me at 2 Chronicles six eighteen, if you don't want to turn there, I'll, I'll read it to you. It says this: But will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you; how much less this house that I have built. What even Solomon realized after building this temple was that it was not about the temple. It was about communion and the transcending nature of who God was. That God desired to be with his people. That this temple could not hold God. Why? Because the earth and the heavens could not hold God. Why? Because the heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. Think about that. In my home, all of you just about have been in my home, I have a chair, I have an ottoman, and what the author of this psalm is saying is that the the chair that I sit in is the heavens for God, and the ottoman is the earth. That God is so large and so great that nothing of who He is can be contained to the creation of His hands. So... Stephen's point is getting louder and louder. And he's saying it's not about the temple. But what I want us to see now, as we transition into 52, 51, 52, and 53, is that he's not coming at the, top, the temple. He's not coming at the law. He's coming at the way in which these people perceived those two things. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people. When you read that, it may not resonate with you the way it would have resonated with these people. Why? And this is why, I'm going to take this moment, this right here is why when we read Scripture, we have to allow Scripture to translate Scripture. We have to allow us to first look at the context of God's Word instead of the context of what it means to us. Because when you think of stiff neck people, you may be thinking like me, like when you get a crick in your neck and your neck's just stiff and there ain't nothing you do about it. But it's talking about a yoke, and it's talking about oxen and an ox that is unwilling to, to alter or move by the yoke of the God or the, the other individual, the connection here, he's calling them a stiff neck people, that they're supposed to be yoked to God, but they're unwilling to go. But there's even a deeper meaning than that. Remember just a moment ago when we read this reference to the moment in which God's people rejected God by building a golden calf? Let's look at that at, in Exodus 32.9. Exodus 32.9, the people have built this golden calf. Moses is still convening with God on the mountain. And this is what he says to Moses. This is what God says to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. The language here is not by accident. Stephen says this because what he's doing to them as the covenant prosecutor is he's taking his trial that was at hand and he's flipping it against them and he's saying, you're truly the one On the trial stand today. And he begins by saying, You are the people that have made idols for yourselves. You are just like our our forefathers in the wilderness that made the golden calf. You are just like them. So when he says, you stiff-necked people, I could just imagine, and this is going to be extra biblical here, but I can just imagine at this point in the sermon is where they're starting to really, really get angry the anger that would then allow them to justify within themselves to push him outside of the city and then to stone him to death. But it doesn't stop there. Look at the next phrase he uses. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. This is a phrase that we're probably familiar with because Paul uses it regularly in his letters, specifically Romans. Romans. But look back at verse, chapter 7, verse 8 with me. It says, and he gave him a covenant of circumcision. And we could go back to Genesis and look at all of that. But the point being here is this. You may be physically circumcised, but you have not spiritually been circumcised that you may think that you're a father, a descendant of Abraham, because you have taken on the physical representation of circumcision. But you're not actually of Abraham. Why? Because you have not been spiritually circumcised of heart or ears. So therefore, your heart is hardened and your ears are closed and you cannot hear. So that anger, I would argue, is getting deeper and hotter. Then he goes on to say, You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which, the pro- which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Hear this distinction. Stephen is now not saying we, us, are. He's saying you. He's saying they He's making a distinction between the people of God and those who are of the generation of Abraham. Those who were a natural descendant of Abraham and those who were spiritual descendants of Abraham. He says, You always resist the Holy Spirit just as your fathers did. How do they resist the Holy Spirit? Well,. These are the same people, as we mentioned earlier, that were standing before Christ as they began to do the work of crucifying him. These are the people that Peter preached to extremely well, calling to repentance. This is the people that he did to a second time. And then also, when you just simply look at chapter 6, verse 10, at one reason they were motivated to kill Stephen says, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They wasn't rejecting Stephen. They were rejecting the spirit of God. Because as we started off with, Stephen was a man that was known for being full of faith and the Holy Spirit. At this point, Stephen is... Now saying you're no different than your forefathers that still killed all of the prophets, but you're actually worse than them. Because all they did was kill the ones that was pointing to the one that was to come, and you actually killed the righteous one. You betrayed him and you murdered him. He's making a distinction here because he he was not in that lineage of the Israelites. And he goes on. says, you have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. What does he mean by this? I think this was the nail in the coffin, okay? This was the one that put them over the edge. He's not only said that you're stiff-necked, so you're just like those rebellious people in the wilderness that made the calf. Then he says you're uncircumcised, so not only are you those people, but you're not even a descendant of Abraham, Now he's finalizing and he's just the, the the last home run to win the game or the nail in the coffin. Whatever phrase you want to put here. You have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. They prided themselves in this. So much so that I would argue in an overcorrection of what we refer to as the Dark Ages, that they put so much extra law on people to make sure people didn't sin, that that, that they did all of these things to make sure that they did not sin against God. So what does Stephen mean by this? they They have sinned against God because they truly have not understood who God was and what God desired. To make this point land a little bit better, I want to read a scripture in John 21 through 25. John 21 through 25. I would argue this is the whole point of Stephen's sermon. He's defending the covenant that God made with his people, a covenant that would be fulfilled in Christ. There's some history here. We're not going to get to the history of this. We've been through enough history. We're going to take this basic for what Jesus says to this woman. This is the woman at the well. After he reveals himself to her, she begins to ask theological questions. Very interesting take. Verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming. Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and it is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us of all of these things. And what does Jesus say to her? I who speak to you am he. What they did not get was it was not about a building or a location or a temple. And even if it was about a temple, they're not even worshiping in the actual temple built by, by Solomon. They're built in the second temple after it was destroyed that was built by Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah. It wasn't about a location. It was about a relationship with God. A, go, a covenant-keeping God that maintains His people. So, the application here, I think, is very hard to get to because this is so much history. But I'm going to offer two for us this morning. The one is when you read Stephen's sermon, and I didn't tell you this before, and this is my favorite, favorite, favorite sermon that we find in all of Scripture. My second one is Paul's sermon on Mars Hill. But what we see throughout all of this is God is a covenant-keeping God that is desiring to save His people. He maintains them, He keeps them, He holds them, He preserves them. He's not a God that protects from difficult or hard times, but He's a God that preserves them through it all. And he redeems his people. So if you're that person that have been redeemed by Christ, find hope and joy and satisfaction and rest in knowing that God is, he is saving you, he has saved you, and he will keep you. If you are not that person, if you have not come to know Christ, my encouragement to you is that God desires for all who repent and turn away from their sins to save them and redeem them, and so turn to him. But the second thing I would call to our attention as we think about a very basic application of all of this is let us be people who convene with and worship God. That certainly happens in this building for us on Sunday mornings, but it has to happen in all other moments of our life too as families, as individuals, and this is how we fulfill that as a church. Let us not misunderstand this. Let us be people who fight against making things with our hands and worshiping them. Let us be people who worship God in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Father, Father, we love you and we thank you. You keep us, you hold us, you maintain us. Throughout all of the Old Testament, we see your sovereign work at hand in saving your people. From Abraham to Solomon, as mentioned here, God, you were doing something amazing. Amazing. But it was nothing in any of those men and women. It was only in the one that would come and speak to a no-named woman at the well and express to her the secrets of your kingdom. And that is simply that there is a day to come where the worshiper will not gather on a mountain or in a temple. For what God desires, what you desire, Lord, It's people that will worship you in spirit and truth. Father, it is so easy for me as an individual to worship you in truth. I pray for myself and others like me that we would worship you in spirit as well. Father, for some it's easy for them to worship you in spirit and not as much in truth, and we pray that you would help them worship you in truth as well and let that motivate how they worship you in spirit. Thank you for Stephen. Thank you for his life. Thank you for his death. In his death, we see the holiness of you and your son and your spirit on display. And we thank you for having a written record of that. We pray this in your son's holy name. Amen.